Well, good afternoon to all of you. By my watch, it's time to start, so let's start. Now, I would like to start by having you sing the third of the songs that is in your sheet, which should be the front side of about the third page, and it should say, How Firm a Foundation, if I'm at the right place. And even before we sing it, I am going to point out that I'm trying to teach a lesson by example. As it happens, we have How Firm a Foundation, same tune in the church hymnal. And I wanted to make a copy and hand it out. You know what? That particular arrangement is under copyright. Now, I happen to know the man that owns the copyright, but I haven't talked to him for a long time. I would have had to find his phone number, call him up, get permission. So I looked around and I found in the Baptist hymnal they have the same tune in a setting that isn't copyright. So it doesn't look like an Adventist hymnal page, although there's not that much difference. This one happens to be from the Baptist hymnal, but it's not a copyright version. Please, people, respect copyright. Church choirs are probably the worst offenders in all of America. And uh, there's no excuse. If you don't own it, you don't got a right to sing it. If you do own it, pay for it. That's all. So, here is how firm a foundation, one of the most marvelous, uplifting hymns, the ones that the students in my class almost always pick from the list of things that they're supposed to learn. Let's sing together. How firm a foundation. out a verse. supposed to be another verse. Sorry, sing it another time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a magnificent assurance that we cannot be put in a situation where you will not go with us. That you do not send us into trial, that when necessary you lead us into trial. But wherever we are, we are in your hands and you are there with us. For this we praise you and we ask for your guidance and blessing as we think together 
about the ways we can praise you this afternoon. In Jesus' name. Pretty much throughout the second half of the 20th century, hymns have suffered a major decline in popularity, even in some circles in acceptability. And I have wondered why. Well, after eight ideas, I ran out. So here are my first eight ideas about why people have not sung hymns as much lately. Number one, it may be just a kind of a normal cycle sort of thing. Like those who don't believe in global warming would like to tell us it's just a matter of going around again. Not a serious issue. Any look at the history of hymn singing in the Christian church will show you anything but a straight line. It has not been constant progression up, constant progression down, or constant flat. Maybe we're just in a downswing. Possible. Number two, I think there may be a decline in seriously invested accompanying musicians. Any of you know the name Seaborn and Becker? Any of you who heard Andrews and heard him lead song services? Now, I know he wasn't the one up there at the pulpit. He was the one at the organ. Uh-huh. And he could make a congregation sing like I have not heard very many other places. And he could build you up and he could set you down gently and he could take you to a spiritual climax with nothing but the pipes of his organ. Brilliant, brilliant musician. Brilliant church musician. There aren't a whole lot of them left. There are some, yes. I'm not saying he was the only one. But he certainly was a figure who taught many others. And his heart was singing through his fingers and his feet. He wouldn't have been as influential if he had not had it in his heart first. It can be done on the piano also. It doesn't have to be organ but it does require a Christian who cares and who thinks. Number three, there seems to have been somewhat of a decline in available accompanists, period. When I was growing up, taking the piano was everybody's, every child's job. Well, not every child, you know, but a great majority. My aunt was a music teacher in Worthington, Ohio, and many of the neighborhood children were in there taking lessons, and they got to where they could play for song service. And I find that the percentage of young people doing the same now is considerably smaller. Maybe there just aren't people to do the job. Number four, our culture does not invite us to sing. By and large, we are not a singing culture. We are not a singing generation. Uh, I don't care whether you go to the symphony concert or the ball game. Whenever they do the um, national anthem, what percentage of the audience sings? I know that's too high. You can't sing that. That's not a fair question, is it? It is very high. But we don't sing as much. And I wonder how many of those who can sing the national anthem can still sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, or Let Me Call You Sweetheart, or any one of oodles of songs that the last generation knew, just knew inside, because they sang them. On the boat ride, when Southern's faculty would go getting together for a social occasion, we could sit and sing for... 40 minutes, songs everybody knew. Some of those songs haven't come through lately. Part of the reason for that, I think, is the fact that we keep getting better and better performances available for our listening, not singing. I can remember the days of old 78 records, shellac records, and then the vinyl LPs, which most of you still don't know how to run, but that's all right. 
And then cassettes came and went, and CDs, who knows how long they'll be around, and iPods, why should we bother to sing? Everybody else is singing. Do we really need it? Part of it comes also from changes in taste foisted on us by the producers of all of these CDs and iPods. The stuff that's out there to sing is not all as singable as On Top of Old Smokey was, or White Christmas, or How Firm a Foundation, even. Number five, I think maybe there's been a change in the general attitudes of society. In the shadow of the atomic bomb, which was all through the Cold War, under the threat of another 9-11, with a whole lot more global orientation making us more aware of the invisible children of Darfur, of whatever. Maybe we just haven't got the heart to sing anymore. It's a depressing world, folks. It's a tough world. And I think our culture has responded somewhat. Number six, there's a decline, I think, in the universality of vocal training. I talked about kids taking piano lessons. There aren't as many kids taking voice lessons anymore. I remember um, it was a standard scenario 50 years ago in funny movies for the family. The teenage girl who had to get up and do her recital and was hanging from the drapes because she was so scared and so on. It's an experience a lot of people never had. We haven't learned to sing. We haven't taught ourselves to sing. We haven't studied vocal culture to the same extent, perhaps, that happened in the past. And uh, furthermore, if you've got a lollipop, you can hold in front of you like this. You don't really have to sing well anyway because the microphone will take care of it all and you can sing as badly as you want and nobody cares. It hasn't helped any. Number seven, I think we are a less poetic generation than in the past. Ah, this isn't safe, is it? How many of you know Jack Be Quick? Jack Be Nimble, Jack Be Quick. What's the rest of it? You really did? Oh, marvelous. I have students when I, in my Music in the Christian Church class, when I come up with nursery rhymes, they say, huh? <laughs> oh, really? How many of you can finish Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost? The woods are lovely, dark and deep. Interesting. I thought maybe that one would ring a bell. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Oh, everybody knew that when I was in school. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as... Okay. You know what, do you? You do. Sort of, yeah, okay. And that has made all the difference. Yep, okay. But poetry involves enjoying language. And we don't use language for enjoyment. We use it for sound bites on the news, pretty much. Madeline Lengel writes about what happens to vocabulary in a time of war. She says, invariably, in a time of war, vocabulary shrinks. We use fewer words. We lose words. And we have lived a whole century of war. World War I, II, Korean War, Vietnam War, Desert Storm. It's been a lot of war lately. Number eight, true hymns require looking away from self to God. And a whole lot of what the 19th century's cultural evolution did turned man away from God to self. Marx and Lenin and Darwin 
and the Industrial Revolution, which was going to promise man his own paradise by his own efforts, and the astonishing discoveries and inventions of telegraph, telephone, radio, television, automobile, air travel, rocket science, not to mention cell phones and uh, global positioning systems. God can use all of these, but who needs him anymore? We can do it. We can do all right by ourselves. The American Humanist Movement, which I'll talk a little more about another time tomorrow morning. Learning to focus on one's own experience in relating to God rather than talking to God himself. And we'll come up with a little more of that later also. Given any or all of the above, is it a wonder that we don't sing hymns like we used to? And I know, for, for, that's for people with my color hair, I'm saying that, I know. But we don't. And there may be reasons. In many respects, a church's hymnal is the layman's Bible, particularly in a day before the layman had a Bible or could read his Bible. The songs he could sing often taught him the gospel. And we haven't needed that anymore. What people sing tends to internalize better than what they just hear. Yeah? I think so. I think so. Even what we read aloud in a responsive reading, if you sing it, it has a different impact. It comes closer to home. It stays with you better. Or can. The added emotional impact of the music joins with the intensity of good crafted language to make a really powerful statement by the soul and to the soul. But what I would like to point out during this hour is that not everything in the hymnal is a hymn. And there's where we need to do a little learning. Recently, my home church instituted a worship committee, which is a good idea, particularly with some changes in leadership that we've had along the way. We needed a worship committee. And by intentional plan, it included three or four at least youth, however you want to define youth. It's kind of a broad term, actually. And I think that's a good idea. I'm in favor of it. I would like to see the youth included and involved, but I would also like to see them taught and mentored and assisted. I will tell you specifically what I have in mind. There was a week when my choir was singing, and whoever was responsible on the worship committee for the service chose as the opening hymn, So Send I You. Now, I've got news for you folks. That's not a hymn. It's in the hymn book, but it's not a hymn. So if I say it's not a hymn, then you have a right to challenge me and say, what is a hymn? Ah, glad you asked. What is a hymn? A hymn is a tribute of praise to a deity. Period. That's what a hymn is. So send I you is not that. It's a fine song, but it's not that. And if I'm going to be told that my worship in, to God, my main worship hymn of the morning is so send I you, I've missed out. Because that's not talking to God at all. That's hardly even talking about God. It didn't fit there. It was an uninformed choice, and nobody had told the youth who was choosing about what a hymn is. And I don't want you to go home and make the same mistakes, if I can help it. I'm reminded of a statement by Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, who said, you might want to write this one down, I've used it a lot. God may not need my intelligence, but he certainly does not need my ignorance. Uh A hymn is a song of praise to God. There are extended definitions that we can push along later. 
But to really properly qualify, it must be praise and it must be directed specifically to God. Here our prayer, O Lord, is directed the right direction. But that's a prayer. That's a petition. It's not praise. So send I you as neither petition nor praise and is not directed toward God. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. An excellent statement, a personal commitment, but has nothing to do with praising God. Specifically, that's about me and my experience and how I respond. A hymn does not have to have music. Particularly in the 17th century, the time of George Herbert and John Donne, there were hymns which never were set to music, at least till the 20th century. A hymn is a text. A hymn is a poem. Period. Well, semicolon. A hymn is a text, a poem, ascribing honor to someone. There are hymns to the pagan gods in the ancient Greek literature, and that's a legitimate use of the word. For the Christian, the person to whom we offer our praise is God. So the fact is, there is a distinct minority of hymns in our hymnal. I would guess, I didn't do, I haven't done an accurate evaluation and count, but I would guess that approximately one in ten of the items in our hymn book is really a hymn. And we should know which ones, and we should know how to figure out which ones, so that when we choose for a spot in the service where hymns are appropriate, we don't stick something else. Our service should be well thought. I'm going to suggest, as a quintessential hymn, Number 21, and that should be the next thing in your handout. Probably on the back side of what you just sang. And I don't know if these are going to stand up here or not. We'll do what we can. should sing with the spirit and what? With the understanding. Oh, punctuation leads us in our understanding. I'm going to do that second stanza of the last half again. Thy justice, like mountains high soaring above. Ah, thy clouds. What's thy clouds got to do with anything? That's what we're soaring above. All right, you do got good lungs. You can carry it through. And then we'll take a breath. We should. Thy justice right there in the middle of the stanza. Here we go. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above thy clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. Oh, does it make sense? Excellent. Which should make sense if we're going to sing praise to God. Going on, third stanza. To all life thou givest, to both 
a mainstream, solid, center-of-the-core hymn. That's praise. That's praise to God. And my next question is, does it matter what I do with it? Can I ruin that How are we doing? So I have to ask another question. That last style, what was that last style? Jazz. What makes jazz jazz? Say what? The chords. I can show you most of the chords that are used in jazz, in classical music, in settings that are not jazz. I won't say all. I won't say all. And jazz harmony is certainly a kind of a family of things that we talk about. It can't be the melody in this case. We know the melody. We just sang it, right? What makes jazz jazz? The rhythm is part of it. Certainly a part of it. I'm going to suggest that what makes jazz jazz, more than anything else, is attitude. And I will tell you why jazz has its attitude. It's legitimate, in a sense. It's reasonable, at least, understandable. Back in the probably mid-80s or thereabouts, somebody came to Southern and did a chapel program, convocation program, who was the co-author of a book entitled The Century. That's all I remember, that he had written the book, that he was a historian, and that he was the co-author of this coffee table book about the century. And he pointed out one thing to me that I had never thought of. 
Whether you and I agree it is appropriate or not, one of the traditional rites of passage for a young man has often, has always been, pretty much through human history, has been the ability to fight, to prove himself physically, to be a soldier, to be a brave warrior. And whether we like war or not, this has for many, many cultures been the proving ground. Yeah? So we got to the First World War, 1914-15, and we got young people who said, you know, everybody else has done it. This seems to work. This is, this is, and we're fighting for a good cause. And so they signed up and went to the army. And they dug their trenches. And something changed, because here came the German airplanes with machine guns mounted on their wings and just went down the trenches. You can't fight that. You can't fight back to that. You've got no defense against that. And then came the mustard gas. You've got to breathe. And there were people who died long, laborious, difficult deaths over years and years after the war. For the mustard gas, you can't stab mustard gas. You can't slash its throat. You can't shoot it. And suddenly the nature of warfare was not what it used to be. It was no longer a place to, quote, prove yourself. And the despair and the, the, the frustration that grew out of that experience, among other things, contributed to the attitudes of the 20s, the flappers era, the prohibition, the speakeasy. And that was the era in which jazz was born. It was music that said, yeah. And still does. That's what this music just did. That's the attitude of jazz. I submit by the same token that the attitude is what makes a hymn a hymn. It's not the notes. He was playing the same notes, but he was not playing them with the right attitude. And the attitude which we bring to our hymns is at least part of what makes it a hymn. So that's a marvelous hymn. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Sorry to leave you bad taste there. We'll come back with something else. Wash it out in a minute. But there are many things in our hymn book that are not even close to the same. And so the next thing you find in your handout is what? Lord, I want to be a Christian. My glasses here. you this time. When we get to the end of the second line, don't quit until you're absolutely totally blue in the face or until I say you can quit. See if you can make that note really stay all the way through. Second stanza. Lord, I want to be more loving in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be
in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be like Jesus in my heart, in my heart, in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be like Jesus in Is that a hymn? Not really. Now, I'm not saying you can't use it in church. Don't get me wrong. But I want you to know what it is. It's a spiritual. Are there any other spirituals in our book? Yeah, how many? Make a rough guess. Eleven by latest count. That's close. Yep. Which is precisely eleven more than there were in the church hymnal 1941. We've made progress. It may be still tokenism, but it's progress, okay? <laughs> I don't know what the balance ought to be. I'm not going to try to guess. But it is a different kind of sound. It can be just as genuine. It can be just as real. And the attitude has as much to do with it. But it's not a hymn. Understand? Make it sense? Good. Okay, next one. 210? Oh, Wonderful. Okay, people, you know me and punctuation, don't you? Ah. Okay, second thing you're going to be amazed at is the speed. Heads up. You think these old chorales take forever? Not this one doesn't. Not if we think about what it says. What's it say? Come on, people, what's it say? For night is what? You believe it? Well, that's no time to be sitting around going to sleep. The watchmen on the heights are crying what? Wake up! Jerusalem, arise, midnight. And then where do you go from there, by the way? Back to the top. Midnight's solemn hour is tolling. His chariot wheels are nearer rolling. He comes. Prepare, ye virgins wise. Then you get to go on down and finish. You understand? You know the repeat sign? You with me? All right. We're going from the top. And I don't want a comma after crying. I know there's one there. But I don't want to hear a comma after crying. You take it after awake, but not after crying. Here we go. Ah... Uh, Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Awake, Jerusalem, arise. Midnight's solemn hour is tolling. His chariot wheels are nearer rolling. dust. I'm proud of you. You're doing a great job. Is it supposed to go that fast? It's a chorale. What's a chorale? Where'd the chorale come from? 
It's a good old German thing. Who invented corrals? Go ahead and say Martin Luther. It isn't quite true, but it's close. It's really, really close. You know why Martin Luther invented corrals? Because he wanted his people to sing. In the fourth century, the church, and you all know, I think, historically, what the church was in the fourth century A.D., the church had a council called the Council of Laodicea. And among other things, they decided at the Council of Laodicea that the only people who could sing in church were the priests, the choir. Congregations no longer sang in church. Furthermore, the choir could only sing scripture. Well, that may not be a wholly bad thing. I don't know. But only the choir could sing. And congregations from that time on did not sing until the age of Martin Luther. And that's a thousand years from the 4th century to the 15th century. And Luther said the people need to sing. I can teach them if they sing. I can help them learn if they sing. I will give them something to sing. And this is what they had. It's chorales. Oh, this is a marvelous, marvelous chorale. It says something about our age. A better known example, of course, is what? What's the great chorale? A mighty fortress. Yeah. If I can remember now how I run this machine, I will see if I can show you how a mighty fortress was supposed to go. Well, that wasn't what I wanted to do either, but it'll work. All right, I'll try once more. I'm going to get there. Sound like it is in our hymn book, does it? Not quite the same. If you look on the back of the first page of your handout, you'll find the one thing I gave you for souvenir. No, two things I've given you for souvenir. This is one of them. There is an image of a very rare autographed copy. It's got Martin Luther's name right down there at the bottom corner. This is the manuscript as he wrote it. And you don't have to be a scholar that knows old notation to realize there are two different note shapes. There's this kind, the diamond sort of shape, and then there's some that have a little stem going up. The stems going up make them half as long. And it's not just all the notes looking the same. We've got the little stem going up every so often, and that means those are shorter notes, just the way they sang it here. Here we go again, same thing.
One reason chorales died is because over a period of time, congregations came to sing them with all the same note values. And they got square. And because they were square, they got stodgy. And because they were stodgy, people quit being interested in singing them. Is this a hymn? It's a chorale. It has the right attitude. It has the right Godward direction. But it's a musical style that is totally different. How many chorales are there in our book? Seven or eight, somewhere around there. And they're hard, and they don't get sung a whole lot, and for good reason. Because people think they should be able to sing all those funny notes that are running around down below there, and they're too fast, or they're hard to sing, and we don't know the tunes. And so, we skip them. And we lose. We lose by just skipping them. We could gain something by learning them. I'd like to sing this one one more time. I'll go a little bit slower, a little slower, give you a little more chance. And we'll only do the first stanza. But I would like you to get a feel for the strength that Martin Luther and his company were trying to provide. Ah, can you read can you read the notes and do the third stanza too? Let's do the third stanza. Lamb of God, the heavens adore thee. Here we go. Lamb of God, the heavens adore thee. Where's the comma? It's not on the long note. I know you think you're running out of air, but your air will last. It'll work. Take a breath after stand, not after wonder. Here we go once more. By the pearly gates. By the pearly gates in wonder we stand and swell the voice of thunder that echoes from thy dazzling What's the next one in your book? Is that a chorale? Is that a hymn? It's a folk hymn. It's a folk hymn, and the sound is totally different. And it's absolutely marvelous. Do you know this tune? Yeah, good, good, good. We're going to sing this tune without, without any piano part. It doesn't need it. Uh, the rest of you that don't know it, kind of join in, come along with Again, this is one that I took from the Baptist hymnal so that we'd have a legitimate copy. Here we go. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss 
is to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Now we have a little fun with this tune. We got a good enough division here, I think we can make it work. You people over here are going to sing with this hand. And all the rest of you people are going to sing with this hand, okay? And when this hand stops, you're just going to stay on whatever note you are. Same note, same word, just stay there. And when I do the same for you, if I stop you, you just stay on that same note. Stay there. Everybody singing melody. Nobody trying to sing parts now. We can do this. Everybody starts together. Ready? To God and to the... Sorry, sorry. Third stanza it is, as you have it in your book. Here we go, to God. To God and to the Lamb I will sing, I will sing. To God and to the Lamb I will sing. To God and to the Lamb who is the great I am. While millions join the theme, I will sing, I will sing. While millions join the theme, I will sing. There's often a lot of flexibility with what you can do with these wonderful old folk hymns. Don't have as many of those as I wish we did in our book, but we have some, and they are worth knowing. That's not, that's not the opening hymn for church kind of thing, people. That's good campfire music. Got a guitar? Fine. Don't try to sing a mighty fortress with a guitar, please. <laughs> Just for me. All right. The next one. What's the next one all about? What kind of a thing is this? It's a psalm. So whose idea was it to put the psalms into verse? Good, good shot. We find this one actually comes from the Scottish... Psalter. What's a psalter? A psalter is a a collection of the psalms, rewritten so that they can be sung as verses. You can't take a Bible psalm and necessarily have the words fit the same melody half a dozen times in a row. They're not put together that way. But if you restructure them, you can do that. And that's precisely what the psalms are for, the psalters. Are four. There's the Scottish Psalter, the Genevan Psalter, Estes Psalter, Damon Psalter. There are just scads of these. And we have representative pieces from almost all of those in our book. Good way to sing Psalm 23. We haven't done it for a while. Let's do it. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. Watch the commas. He makes me down to Within 
way to do the psalms and there are many of those settings also in our hymnal I wish I wish we could have sung it to brother James there it's another one of those copyright issues I didn't want to have to mess with but it's in our hymn book to brother James there look it up sometime beautiful setting the Lord's my shepherd I'll not want great great tune we have also a couple of examples believe it or not of ooh Gregorian chant, plain song. Oh, the most familiar tune to which we sing when I survey the wondrous cross. Lowell Mason arranged it from a plain song. Doesn't hurt it any. But there's one that really has the freedom that we expect a plain song to have. And since it's the right season of the year, I put it in here. It's number 116, of the Father's love begotten. And this one also should not have accompaniment. We ought to just sing But you have to sing with the flexibility that the words suggest and that the freedom of the notes calls for. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He. Of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. O ye heights of heaven, adore him, angel hosts his praises sing, powers, dominions bow before him. And extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent. Every voice in concert ring. Evermore and evermore. We're going to save the last stanza of that one, sorry. Just because we're running so short on time, i got lots more. There's more than that in our hymn book. That's plain song. That's not like anything else. Probably the largest number of items in our book, however, are what would properly be called gospel songs. Some call them gospel hymns. And I'm not going to fuss over the distinction as long as we stick the word gospel on there because it implies a different sort of sound than what I would call mainstream hymns. These are not going to sound like immortal, invisible, God-only wise. And gospel songs are written and used to talk about our response to our experience with God rather than our worship of God. That doesn't mean they aren't worth singing. Practically every invitation hymn that you've ever heard in an evangelistic series is a gospel song. Okay? That's just how they work. That's what they're good for. 
Anywhere with Jesus? These are usually quite lightweight musically. They often dance a little bit. Oh, I, I didn't say that, did I? Um, <laughs> the language is usually pretty simple, very direct. They are not challenging to the intellect as a whole, but they are challenging to the emotions. This one that we've got, that we're going to sing now, has what is called compound meter, and you'll recognize the little lilt to the feel musically. It has a refrain, which hymns almost invariably don't. Okay? You see anything with a refrain, it's probably a gospel song. Fairly responsible uh, decision. It has to do with my response to the gospel, my benefits from believing. Everything you think of, softly and tenderly, for you I am praying, I need thee every hour, pass me not, O gentle Yeah, well, this whole line, they're all gospel songs, they're wonderful things. The glory song, over yonder, marching to Zion, these are all great gospel songs. And in the hymnal of 1941, they were at least approximately put in a different setting. The first 200 or so were more likely to be mainstream hymns, everything from 200 on to 600 or so was pretty much Sabbath school songs, gospel songs, MV meeting songs. No, they don't use MV anymore. Ah, youth meeting songs. Okay. This general category, we should use them. We should use them richly, but we should not confuse them. This, my dear people, is not the opening hymn for church. Anywhere with Jesus I can safely go. song. And we should use it. There are even, believe it or not, a very, very few real carols. Now, we think all those Christmas things are all Christmas carols. Actually, most of them aren't. They're Christmas songs, but they don't fit the typical category of carol. I want to show you one which should be on your list there next, as Jacob with travel was weary one day. Is that, you got that in there? Oh, interesting. You know this tune at all? I'm guessing 95% at least don't. And I think that's a major pity. And the fun thing about this one is you need both pages. So be ready to turn your page or look on the other side, whatever it is, because it all goes together. This is a longer one. Okay? Here we go. 
As Jacob with travel was weary one day, at night on a stone for a pillow he lay. He saw in a vision a ladder so high that its foot was on earth and its top in the sky. Hallelujah to Jesus who died on the tree and earth raised up a ladder of mercy for me. And earth raised up a ladder of mercy for me. Isn't that a jolly thing? Yeah, we need to know that better. Here's the second stanza. The ladder is long, it is strong and well made, has stood hundreds of years and is not yet decayed. Many millions have climbed it and reached Zion's hill, and thousands by faith are climbing it still. Alleluia to Jesus who died on the tree and hath raised up a ladder of mercy for me. And when we arrive at the haven of rest, we shall hear the glad words, Come up hither, you blessed. Here are regions of light, here are mansions of bliss. Oh, who would not climb such a ladder as this? Alleluia to Jesus who died on the tree and has raised up a ladder of mercy for me. And has raised up a ladder of mercy for me. Now that fits the category of carol, even though the shape isn't precisely right. The shape of a carol only occurs in a couple of cases in our hymnal. The best known probably is All Things Bright and Beautiful. You know what? All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great. Okay, good. So you sing that first. Then you sing the stanza. Then you sing the refrain again. And the refrain comes first and last, right? Yeah. Uh, Lift high the cross has the same structure. There are a couple of others. That's the real form of a typical carol. With the burden first, the refrain first, called a burden, technically. The refrain first and last, and the stanzas in between. Well, so we got lots of different things in here. The 1941 hymnal even had a little section called Choir and Special. (laughs) I'm glad they left that out. Choir's got enough to do on their own. There are a few things in this hymnal that are almost as awkward as that, but uh, I'm not going to pick on those. And, of course, there are the worship music items, the Gloria Patri and the doxology, as we refer to it, and calls to prayer and responses to prayer, even the category of calls to prayer has texts that come from Habakkuk, Isaiah, the Psalms, writers from the 20th century, from the 19th century, from the 18th century, the 17th century, the 16th century, the 13th century, and the 5th century. People, most of us have some kind of an awe response. I talked about awe this morning. We are somehow kind of in awe when we see something that is that old and is real, the real thing. The genuine, that article itself. I found a website which will sell me one page out of the first published English Bible, provided I'm willing to part with a considerable amount of money. Have you ever seen the Star Spangled Banner? It's a special thing. Smithsonian has just spent $8 million over the last 15 years restoring it, as close as it can. 
And this, this still hasn't, hasn't been remounted yet in its new display case, which will be humidity controlled. Okay. The Declaration of Independence, it's in the archives up there in D.C. And boy, you better not... Uh, well, you can't. It's in glass. Okay. But the real thing is something special. Why do Christian tourists go to the Holy Land? They want to be where it happened. They want to see the real thing. How far back does this book go? Did you know that in this book is the oldest known extant Christian hymn? The very first one we have any definite record of is in this book. You got it in your hands also. Number 555 in your book. Interesting. Now, the music doesn't go back that far. The music only goes back to the 19th century. But the words go all the way back to Clement of Alexandria, perhaps 100 years after John the Apostle died. That's getting a long ways back. This should put us in touch with the Christianity of an earlier day. It is a way for us to find out what was there. And you'll notice at the bottom of the page it says, the earliest Christian hymn extent. I'm guessing you don't know it. Let's try singing it. We won't go too fast. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love and the truth, food devious ways, Christ our triumphant King, we come thy name to sing. Hither our Suddenly you've been in touch with an era long gone, long gone, that has a lot to say yet to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a treasure we have in our hands. 
what resources we have to sing about you and to sing to you and to sing your love and your praise and your grace and your goodness. Thank you for all of this and more to come. We seek your blessing as we continue to think, to learn, and to sing in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.